Hi folks, and thanks again for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. There is a ton of content building up for the Christmas, and we have our uh, annual look back at the year that was uh, scheduled this week. Uh, and we have some great contributors. The usual the usual crew will be along um, to, to give their opinions on the year that was. And you'll also hear from the likes of Emma Langford, Rosemary Mon, Blind Boy, our friend Shami Malikmian, and a special message from uh, Colin from Portsmouth. Love to the family. All of those will be available as quickly as we can turn them around on the Patreon feed. We also, tomorrow on the Patreon feed, have a Christmas present to me. I had a great conversation with David Gillick, and I absolutely loved every moment. I want to thank David for being so frank and honest about his own struggles and what we called his longest race. It was really, really, really amazing, and thank him to come for coming over and spending time with this Egypt. If you can, please help us. Please join us. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month and it keeps the mics on and the show on the road. Beyond that, I want to take the time to thank everybody for their support this year. All the people who have contributed, who've, all the people who have given their time, given their expertise and helped us keep this show on the road. It has been a very difficult and trying year and we've had a lot of loss. Um, But... Nonetheless, we try to keep going. It's not it's not easy being one of those no ads, no sponsors types of podcast platforms, but we keep going and it wouldn't be possible without your support. Uh, if you can, do click the link while you're listening to this podcast. It, it's the only way we keep the show on the road into 2023. Thanks again and I hope whatever you're doing over the next few weeks, you enjoy it and take some time away because God knows I need to log off a little bit. Talk to you all soon. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back talking about a subject that we've kind of, so you're spinning plates in this all the time. You're trying to keep an eye on everything. You're trying to watch what's happening. And sometimes it's sexier to talk about what's happening in Brazil, Martin. It's our, you know, you know what's happening in, in Colombia. But we often lose track of, of things that are happening within the EU. And one of the topics we've covered for the last few years, and you know, you know, I'm personally, I'm I'm invested in it because I I watch it closely. I've I've friends and family there. Is Spain, um, and it's something that I think a lot of uh, Europeans kind of kind of don't be don't be cognizant enough of because when we talk like to Joe in Portugal. Martin, you know this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been what is it a, a third time returned with a with yeah. a bigger majority. Yet Spain kind of has a left government. It has cobbled together large elements of the of the left and and sort of attached other parts of uh, you know Basque and Catalan separatists, well nationalists, shall I say, to put this to put this coalition in force. And it's kind of really always on the brink of always toppling over. And there's been a lot of elections there. Let's tell the truth. But anyway, enough of my waffling on about it because we're delighted to be rejoined on the podcast. And listeners will remember Owen Gilmartin from the time we spoke to him about the massacre in Malia and what the, the Fortress Europe, how, how look, let's tell the truth, folks, how barbaric Fortress Europe can be. He's He writes with, with Jacobin, the Tribune magazine. He's contributing to Navarra Media and Open Democracy. And he has his own podcast, and I'm going to mispronounce it. It's the Sombracast. And check it out. The link is in this podcast you're listening to right now. Owen, it's good to talk to you. How are you keeping? Hey, very good. Thanks, Tony. Listen, if you don't mind... Can we just get like overall reflections because because it's been a few months before we've gone there. Where do you see the state of play in both the Spanish 
politics, political realm, and of also in the in the wider realm of how people are are experiencing this cost of living crisis. And you can't see us, but I'm doing air quotes, folks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess in Spain we're we're a year away from general elections, and I guess politics in general is being determined by that fact that 2023 is going to be a big, a big election year. You'll have the local, the municipal elections, and a lot of regional elections in May. And then probably November, December, the general election. So, in a sense, that even the tackle, you know, the tack, I think tackling the the cost of living crisis has to be seen. You know, the parties, the government is responding in, ter- in terms of the fact that they're facing re-election in a year. And I think we have to admit, Spain, out of all the European countries and within the parameters of the European Union, has done more to tackle the cost of living crisis. So it has the lowest. The, the lowest inflation rate for November in the EU was in Spain, and that's that's probably down to two two major factors. One that they that the Social Democratic Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez negotiated a cap on the cost of gas um, last last spring, last May, with with Brussels, and so there's this Iberian exception in play where basically Spain and Portugal um, have a cap on the price of gas for the production of electricity. So basically, the cost of electricity has been decoupled from the the soaring price prices of gas, and you know I think within the EU this is an important an important thing simply because you can see a debate going on at the moment where like is the ECB going to continue to raise interest rates and you know pummel pummel mortgage holders etc. And in Spain, that's very that's a very emotive issue because of course the last financial crisis saw a wave of evictions. Um, you know, there's a, you know, a huge number of low, low income families who, who, who own their own homes in Spain. Um, whereas instead of trying to deal with inflation in terms of, in terms of like raising interest rates, what Spain is doing is intervening in particular markets, the markets which are driving inflation, because this isn't a general, you know, we're, we're talking about like, you know, a, a generational uh, energy uh, crisis. Can I just, for can I contextualize this for listeners? Because if you listen to us and every time we have um, Richard Murphy on, he makes the point that they keep raising interest rates in the Bank of England, yet that's not the actual issue here. It's, yeah. it's, it is the energy markets. It is the, the cost of food coming, food production and food imports. It's, it's not this thing. So, so no, that's, that's interesting to hear. So yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, that's that's there is that debate going on within the European Union, and we can see basically in you know in France and then Spain, Portugal is where you can see there's cert- certain interventions in the in the in the energy markets. I mean, they Brussels, you know, this went on for months. These negotiations, Brussels basically gave them this ex- this Iberian exception for Portugal and Spain because they don't depend on Russian gas. They you know they get uh, liquefied natural ga- natural gas, and then they the pipeline from Algeria. Um, so I think. You know, you have that on one side, which which has really reduced inflation um, here, and on the other side, you've we've had quite, I guess, what you would call sort of mid-intensity social democratic policies to deal with the the cost of living crisis, and you know, we've just had a, a, um, a sort of give giveaway budget. I actually had a drink with the head of the the budget committee in the Spanish Parliament last night. Uh, you know, he's from from the sort of radical left from Podemos. Um, very interesting guy. He he actually used to work work as a spy for the 
well, spy, well, intel, intelligence slash for, for for the Ecuadorian for uh, for Korea. He, no, for he was Korea. he he was a a embassy staffer. Okay, <laughs> no, he was. Well, look, he he was the he was the guy. His, his name is Chema Guerrero. I've I've done a long interview with him before, and um, he organized Julian Assange's uh, asylum in London. So he wow. he has he has some great stories about being pursued by MI five around London. But anyway, he's now head of the uh, the budget committee in in Madrid, um, the Madrid Parliament. And a, a left wing, a left wing uh, MP, but he, you know, I guess his his take, for example, on the bud on the actual budget negotiations was that they have managed, you know, when you look at it, they have managed to, I guess, negotiate a series, particularly from from the you know left pressure. These were policies driven by Podemos, the radical left, um, which is the junior partner in 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 government, around you know radically reducing the cost of public transport. You know, commuter trains and medium distance trains are free in Spain now. If you get yeah. a if you get a the month pass, my metro and bus pass for Madrid is fifty percent has been reduced by fifty percent. I paid, you know, you would have paid. I think it was fifty four or something. I now pay twenty seven euro a month for my. You know, even fifty four is not compared to somewhere like Dublin. You know, twenty twenty seven euro. So you know, it's been reduced by fifty percent. There's been a huge increase in the in the, you know, basically their equivalent of, of the Darsh or whatever, like the commuter trains. Um, a huge increase in in the number of passengers, you know, using this as a cheap alternative. Um, and then in the budget, there was a you know a pretty big increase in in social spending, pensions, um, other welfare programs like the um, guaranteed minimum income. These all these all got like inflation there, there level. Was a, there, there was increases. also there, there was also a focus, and correct me if I'm wrong. There was also a focus on the. Um, retrofitting of buildings um as well yeah that's part of, i think that's part of that's part of the eu recovery funds which yeah i know but i'm just making the point yeah in ireland no that's we, true we screwed we we screwed up there they yeah, managed to do rec- that we didn't yeah. get recovery fund either we got well that's we- it that's an even bigger issue but like i think i i have issues with the way they've managed the recovery funds i think the the it's a lot of it's going into sort of public private partnerships um with the with the the usual big corporations the ebex uh s35 which you know a lot of them have have sort of francoist francoist roots etc we could talk about that but um so like the budget you know they've also negotiated you know a a, a, a temporary wealth tax a solidarity wealth tax right. for the next few years a windfall tax on on electricity and 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 the banks now for me those three taxes, they are too moderate. They should have been, you know, they should have been tougher. But again, you know, the radical left is, is a smaller... You're calling uh, them moderate, and over here we call them unachievable. You know, yeah. you, we can't do it. I was looking, um, you know, I, I compare countries for cost of living and that, and Spain turns out that if you're a teacher, Spain is the best place in Europe to be. It may not be the highest wages, but you've the best chance to save money and the best quality of living. So that's kind of a very good thing for Spain. If you think teacher is kind of mid-professional salary, um, that's that's good. I think it's, it's, it's hard to compare. I mean, I think the problem in Spain, I mean, um, like I think median... Median income in Spain in the last figures I have are from 2019, but it was like the median income. So like 50% of the population and lower earn about 1,400 euro a month. Um, and the thing is, yeah, which is and like a large percentage of the population earn less than a thousand euro. There are very high levels of poverty in Spain. 
And if you have a, yeah, if you are a medium level professional or up, you live amazing. But probably there is a huge problem with like just low income, low income jobs, uh, precarious contracts, et cetera. And I think, yeah, if you, if you're a, I mean, yeah, if you're a civil servant, if you're a teacher, even if you're a policeman, it's a much better place to live than Ireland. No doubt. You don't I mean, have like, like uh, we, 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 on Sunday, listeners will hear the, it's been out for about two weeks, but they will put it on general release. Uh, Park Wilson McCarthy's conversation, seven years a teacher and facing his third notice to quit letter from the landlord. Yeah. Yeah, agree. yeah, no, incredible. No, I mean, that's it. I mean, I obviously Ireland's a, you know, basically Ireland is a, what is it like a, you've got two, two separate economies, the, yeah, 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 the, you know, like the multinational high tech economy and the rest. But, um, yeah, in Spain it is. If you're middle class and you're a professionalist, it is a very good place. But at the same time, it does annoy me sometimes. I mean, I remember last summer you get after after COVID, you got I got a lot of you know my Twitter feed was full of UK, Irish, American um, academics and professionals coming to Spain and going on about how cheap cheap everything was, and it is cheap, but it's also a low wage economy in which the majority don't live that well. So I think it is true. Like, I mean, I, my son are living here in Spain. It is much better than it would be in, in Dublin and going out, um, you know, restaurants, et cetera, are very cheap, et cetera. Um, you know, housing, housing is well, relatively cheaper than Dublin, obviously, but it is, you know, Spain is a very polarized economy. And, and um, you've written about the low wage workers, particularly the gig economy workers. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that on? Yeah, uh, well, hang again, on. No, so no, sorry. I just want to be very clear. Who had seventeen minutes before Martin went to bogus self-employment because you won the lotto? Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 sorry for sorry for the inappropriate, but but we knew it was getting there, Martin. Well done. Yeah. Well, like I think the thing is, okay, Spain again. Spain has one of the highest level of of um, gig employees in Europe. Is you know it's, it's it's a big part. You know you have this this large pool of low wage precarious wor- uh, uh workers at the at, at the sort of bottom of the of the economy um not just you know not just delivery riders uh with delivery and people like that but you know cleaners you know all the way up there's now there's now various struggles happening around you know psychologists teachers lawyers that are you know doing these sort of online platform work uh you know it's you, you can see the sort of proletarianization of even like you know these sort of certain certain areas in the professional sphere spain you know i mean again going back to the 2008 crisis one of the issues in spain is they have this generation of people who are so well trained you know they all have degrees masters two masters even but then there's no opportunities and they end up either going going to ireland or or the uk to work in i don't know like you know pret-a-manger or starbucks or something or staying at home and, and taking a sort of a low wage job. And I think, you know, um, so the gig economy is a, is a major issue. And I think the key portfolio in the current coalition government that the left hold is the labor ministry. Uh, Yolanda Diaz, who's sort of the new figurehead of the radical, le- you know, quote unquote radical left in Spain is um, she has the, la- the labor portfolio. She's a labor minister and she has, she has been the outstanding figure within the government sort of driving forward, you know, again, against a lot of opposition. There was a major sort of uh, labor law reform last last February. I think it finally went through. But, you know, after months of negotiations in which he had to negotiate with the right wing of the, the Socialist Party and um, their, their economic chief, Nadia Calvino, who's like an ex 
uh, high official from Brussels, um, and a lot of pressure coming from Brussels directly to water down th- the reforms. But I think where where the reform, the final actual agreement was strongest was in trying to tackle precarious labour, and you know getting away from the sort of in Spain there was you know hundreds of thousands of people caught on these sort of rolling short-term contracts of, you know, you get a month's contract and you don't know if you're going to be, you know, yeah. the company has the work, but they're keeping you on this continual flow of of rolling, you know, month or two-month contracts. I spoke, um, so I, spoke ba- to, I spoke to someone yesterday, and, and just to put this in Irish context, yesterday, the company got a five-year contract effectively with the Irish state and offered, and I said, great news, everybody, we got a five-year contract, we're offering you all a six-month contract. Yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that I, is I just... think it's very interesting that you've said that the the more professional class has been forced into the gig economy, and particularly you mentioned councillors. Um, yeah. um, and that's happening here. That has happened here as well. And you're talking about a, a minister for Labour. Tony, you know who the counterpart is here in Ireland? Go, shout, go. Leo Varadkar is the, is the counterpart. Uh, yeah, but you got to, okay, but, oh, it's, it's very important. <laughs> but that's, but Owen, you're both laughing, but we got to remember, he was he was lauded for going and giving a, sta- a speech where he said he was going to move towards, a, he was, he was going to tackle the gig economy, move towards a living wage, and, you know, talk, to, talk about him, him improving good, more jobs, better jobs. That was the phrase he used, more jobs, better that's jobs. Better jobs. And, and within... The same window of time he'd written to the EU, well, signed a letter that went to the EU about a directive about recognizing collective bargaining, paying paying living, said Ireland's not signing up. And yeah, but he'd gotten all the headlines in in all the newspapers saying, Well, look at him. Jeez, Leo's jumped ahead. He's 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 yeah, he's he's, he's gone lefty, but he hadn't. He'd, he'd well, I mean, yeah, no, sorry, but yeah, like for for example, Yolanda Diet, the Labour Minister here, is a member of the Communist Party. Um she's not I mean, she's sort of a grassroots member. Her her political trajectory trajectory is 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 linked to a sort of regional platform in in, in Galicia. She's she's from Galicia. Um, a very not, I've only met her once, but the one time uh, I met her, like you know, she seemed very actually very interested in, in Ireland, etc. Uh, you know, Galicia has that sort of Celtic link. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, she her father was a a, a key trade unionist leader who, who you know who was. Who fought fought Franco in the seventies? You know, was was one of the founders of the Comisiones Obreras, those sort of working councils, which is like the big communist affiliated trade union in Spain, um, which was on unle- you know obviously illegal under Franco, etc. Um, so her like she has you know her left wing pedigree is you know is is very clear. She has quite an institutional profile. Maybe she's not like you know she took over. I don't know, like from Pablo Iglesias, like the pony ponytailed uh, leader who was sort of equivalent to Corbyn or Mélenchon yeah. or or Bernie. Um, and her her you know she would have a sort of quieter profile. She's much more of an institutional figure, but is also you know is is a very good communicator. Um, and she has she's driven, I guess, this labor reform. And then one of the other reforms she's driven is is what's called the rider law, which regulates the, the gig economy, or at least the delivery sector of the gig economy. Um, where, But it, we're in a very strange moment here where basically the two, the two largest delivery platforms um, in Spain at the moment, Glovo, which is a Spanish, Spanish-based one, and Uber Eats, are basically refusing to comply with the law. You know, they're... Um, and they're dragging out the cases. You know, it, it gives them this 
important competitive advantage. They're not directly employing the, their That's right. their de- delivery riders. And so the other companies are, they're complying with the law. You know, the only, it's a, it's a strange thing where like, if you want, I guess the sort of, you know, the sell of these delivery platforms is that you'll get rapid deliveries. No, I mean, if you, you'll order your food, it'll get there in 20 minutes or whatever. The only ones who can now do that are the ones who aren't complying with the that's law. That's right. That's right. It's, because they're, it's, well, it, look, the key, the key thing, the key thing in Spain is that basically, yeah, if you're employing them, you're, you know, you're paying people by the hour. You can't have a sort of army of, of, of delivery cyclists just standing by idly. Whereas, uh, whereas uh, Uber Eats and Glovo can, because you're only paying them for the delivery. So they can have, you know, hundreds of hundreds of delivery riders basically standing around the streets waiting for a delivery. Whereas the other ones, the other, uh, the other platforms have to pay them by the hour. And so you're, you're, you're losing money if you're doing that. Where does it go after this? I mean, the, the, the gig economy you're tackling, we'll say if you're middle class, you're doing quite well. If you, there is good home or home, home ownership among, uh, people in in lower income groups but that's also changing am i right about yes that? there is there's a big generational divide so you know there's you know the, when we talk about sort of millennial socialism or whatever you know people under 40 in spain you know the, le- the both in terms of their their employment opportunities and the level of home ownership is much lower so yeah you know and you're getting these sort of like you know geriatric millennials coming uh you know which i include myself there but like you know you're you're getting people you know they're going they're they're heading towards 40 they're going into their 40s even and they're sort of you know like uh their home ownership home ownership is just something that they can't access and spain has terrible social housing i mean it's uh yeah, barcelona it's, is one of the exceptions because but, of the but, but barcelona acted differently yeah, it, it, yeah. It, and it's funny because we keep like a I am running a half marathon this weekend um, to raise money uh, for the hurt feelings of people in Blackstone and the REITs that are <laughs> actually struggling at the moment um, because I've seen they've had to close their funds to withdrawals. Now, I'm joking, but the real funny thing is when you have a huge, I mean, we're not talking a few billion, we're talking hundreds of billions in these funds and they are they are owning the likes of um, residential units and commercial units across the globe, and they're saying no withdrawals from our funds. That is a huge, huge alarm bell ringing. Yeah. Blackstone, Blackstone were one that were actually tackled in Barcelona directly as, because they were obviously coming in on the on the on the residential side. They are, I think, there's like four Blackstone. I think have four companies registered in Dublin. So people tell me all the time they're not here. Yes, they are. Um, they just they just change the names. Like the like I think there's like sixteen names for um uh what's what's the what's the second oh um uh Goldman Sachs have several names on different companies in Dublin, Martin, and we've we've gone down that road where where, where you can see that ultimately the the the, the real Goldman's- owner. And Goldman Sachs let off a load of people. Oh, but yes, they're all. But this is my point. They're all. They're, they're all struggling, and my heart bleeds for them. But, <laughs> but but what I find really interesting when we talk about 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 Spain, particularly home ownership, there was always there was a there is a tradition more so than say in Ireland of you know family generational families within family homes and and, yeah. and the likes of that. Whereas we we don't have that here. But what we're seeing now in Spain is the the lack of 
social mobility. The, the ladder has been pulled up as well. Um, if I can just bring it to one one really important thing, then on the flip side of that, and it, it is something that you know we've been concerned about for a while. The right are saying this is down to immigration. The right are saying this is down to the the what's happening. You've covered what was great in terms of as in great coverage. I'm sorry, but it was a yeah. horrible story what happened in, 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 in Malia. But even now there's still a dishonesty about what happened there, own. Um, am I am I right about that? They haven't faced facts on this at all. Yeah, no, completely. Um I was there, I went I went in August yeah, end of August, start of September. Um and I was talking to some of the survivors, et cetera. I mean, most of the people were pushed back across the border and, you know, very hard to find, but a few hundred managed to stay in Malia, the sort of North African enclave. I mean, one of the weirdest borders you will ever cross. Um, you know, you're, you know, you're basically crossing between two continents, this sort of strange European enclave in, in North Africa. It feels like Southern Spain. It feels like Andalusia. And then the the city on the other side, Nador, which is the, the Moroccan city, you know, it's just an, ex- an extremely poor, um, extremely poor, poor, poor city, you know, these sort of slums. And one of the things that's that's happened since the pandemic is that border has been shut. Like before the pandemic, a lot of Moroccans in that area would cross in to um to work for the during the day on building sites, etc. And that that's been that's been sort of since the pandemic that hasn't come back. And so there's a lot of people just like, you know, who would have, who've been three years in Morocco now without work, but the actual massacre itself. Yeah. I mean, there's been a, basically an attempt to cover up in Spain. And I think for an, for a, num- a number of months, it looked as if they were going to get away with this until the BBC. And this is, this is a sort of pretty shameful for the Spanish media, but it was the BBC that sort of brought, brought attention back to this story. I'd, I'd been writing about it, but, you know, not not obviously. I can't generate the type of uh, no, type of coverage that. the BBC do. Uh, <laughs> but it, they they manage. They they came out with a very good report. You know, very sort of forensic, um, detailing the the various deaths, etc. You know, there's up to a. You know, I think we're talking up to like ninety people died. Maybe you know, nearly nearly a hundred. You know, this was. And did you know, the BBC uh, report precipitate action? Then it did because it it. Um, it was sort of echoed a lot in the Spanish media. Like you couldn't ignore it. This was, they had, they had, they had been le- leaked a lot of the, the, uh, the video footage from the border itself, et cetera. And so, yeah, there has, there has been movement. I mean, at the moment, the interior minister who's sort of, you know, one of the sort of more conservative elements within the socialist party, I mean, his line is basically, um, the BBC is is not telling the truth, or it's you know this is false, etc. He's just denying everything, but it's becoming more and more difficult because there's more footage that's been leaked. You know, you can see, you know, on the videos, you can see that the people are dying on Spanish territory, for example. Um, you can see the actions by the Spanish Guardia Civil and that the Moroccan police entered Spanish territory, something unprecedented. Entered were were allowed by Spanish authorities to enter uh, Spanish territory and. Uh, remove one, remove the bodies, the dead bodies, and number two, uh, remove people that had been detained by the Spanish police back to Morocco. The p- sort of pushbacks. Normally, pushbacks involve, you know, the actual Spanish police push the the migrants back across the border, whereas this time the Moroccan police entered Spanish territory and carried it out themselves. Um, I mean, when you talk, you know, you talk to some of the survivors, like they're they're working. You know, there is a migrant center in um a refugee center in in the in the territory, etc. 
And a lot of them are working, trying to work, sort of work informally, cleaning cars along the beachfront, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're very adamant that, you know, the Spanish authorities were, were very much involved, you know, the, talking about, you know, the Spanish, it was the Spanish who were hurling tear, uh, tear gas canisters into this very, basically like, you know, there were hundreds, yeah, hundreds of migrants. We've seen that we've seen the footage and it's not the sort of thing you want to share with people, to be honest with you. No. It's quite disturbing. And, but, but, but just, I want to put that in context because we, we have this awful thing that's really on the rise and you may have picked up on it own where, yeah. you know, like everybody, we, we've got this two tier system. Obviously we've always had a problem with direct provision, how people were treated, but we have people now running around putting camera phones in people's faces saying, you don't look Ukrainian, you're not fleeing a war. Yeah. And then, and then there's no idea what people have endured to, to, to get to, to Europe. And then you, you, you know, that phrase that you used there a couple of times, pushbacks, you know, it was, it, it was kind of made famous in, in, in Greece, if you remember. Yeah. With that, with the awful, what were they, the golden, um, golden dawn. Yeah. Yes. The golden dawn and, and the, and the behavior of what was essentially fascist, uh, supporters and you know and then you see it then playing out in Fermoy you see issues in 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 East Wall you see it we've seen it on on the yeah. rise it is a tiny amount of people but it's easy enough to, to turn a lot of people if you if you give them the language and and for for Europe to not have faced up to let alone Spain face up to what's happened in in Malia is still a stain on on us overall and that's just No it's it's incredible you know this is one of the largest massacres uh, you know, on a, on a, on a European border, when, you know, in decades, I mean, it's, um, it's, an, it's an incredible thing. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think there is a strange thing in Spain, I think, because obviously for, for example, you know, I mean, I was talking to Basque, Basque MPs and stuff who were, do, you know, doing really good work on this from, from Bildu, like the sort of Sinn Féin equivalent in, in the Basque country. Um, and I guess there is a certain dilemma for these groups that, you know, you want to, you want to hold the socialists to account. You want to hold the government to account, but the obvious, you know, but you, you, they can't bring down the government because the alternative, the alternative to this quite complicated coalition, um, is a hard right government, in, including, you know, the extreme right neo fascist oh, like, Vox Party. Bring it, bring on Vox! Woohoo! Yeah, no, I mean, I went. I think I was telling you that the last time I was on when I was in, I was in Andalusia in, in the summer, and I went to a Vox rally. In, in Marbella, which is, you know, sort of Vox capital. Um, is it? But, I didn't know that. Well, it's it's a very rich area. So, you know, and there's been a lot of corruption with the mayor and stuff there. But yeah, it's, you know. Um, You've upset, Martin. Marbella yeah, is. Upset. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, like, a, you know, it, <laughs> it's like, you know, Vox, Vox is an interesting party, okay? Because it's, it's a sort of party which, you know, all its leading cadre come from, are are all extremely wealthy, but they mm. most of them come from sort of the upper echelons of the Spanish state. They're judges, they're high level police officers, uh, states attorneys, retired generals, etc. And they're not, you know, um, they're not a sort of populist force in the sense like you know Le Pen or Le Pen in France um, or Salvini in, in Italy. At times, can attract you know can sort of attract working class voters. Including, you know, Le Pen, famously sort of ex-communist voters or whatever. But in Spain, it is, it's really just a sort of radicalization of, of the most, 
reactionary elements in Spanish society. It's it's closer, I guess, to Maloney in that sense in in Italy. And she was she she was in Andalusia giving a speech. Oh, she came over. And, yeah, she came yeah. over and gave that. Um, and it's been played which is, a lot. Yeah, which is what you were referring to. No, like I mean, her line is that like yeah. The Ukrainians are, you know, she literally said, you know, women, women, we're getting women and children from Ukraine. Why aren't the men coming? Because it's a war and they've stayed to fight. Whereas, you know, from Africa, you know, we're getting these like, quote unquote, rapists from Africa who are coming, you know, young men, et cetera. And there is, you know, so they make that distinction, et cetera. Um, you know, obviously, you know, disgusting racist distinction, but like, um, yeah. So I think the threat, I mean, that's the thing, the threat of, of a radical white, well, you know, a hard, well, a hard right, because Vox will very much be the sort of junior partner, but it, it would be a hard right government um, this time next year in Spain. You know, that threat is, has sort of kept the coalition together um, because, you know, it's true. Like when we look at Melia, in one sense, there is a sort of temptation to say, you know, what's what's the difference between left and right? And they have, you know, the Socialist Party at times have taken on, quite right-wing rhetoric, rhetoric around immigration, you know, the, the descriptions of, of what happened to Malia that came from Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister at the beginning, were disgraceful. But, you know, I think Spain is very polarised and the idea that the, the right could get in is, is a sort of, is a pretty terrifying prospect. How polarised? Yeah, I think you can, it is similar to, you can see in the, in the US where you have, you know, in the midterms, basically there was no movement between the left and the right blocks. And there is that sense that the key, the key to the elections next year is going to be mobilization rather than, you know, you're not going to, there's the socialist party, the social Democrats, center left have had this internal debate, whether they should be trying to attract, you know, sort of more centrist voters from the pop right wing popular party, or is it a question of mobilizing the left? And since the summer, the disaster in the regional Andalusian elections, where the right, you know, um, won an absolute majority, they have come to the, that there's, they can't, they need a, a clearer social democratic line and that the, the election has to be fought around, I guess, you know, the post pandemic period really helped the right, the right's promise of freedom, no, like after the restrictions, et cetera. So, um, the, the right of one of a series of, of regional elections just promising freedom, you know, end of restrictions, etc. Whereas I think in the last few months we've seen we've seen certain protests. There was a huge protest in um to, in Madrid, like 800,000 people in defense of public the public health system. And there is a sense that the election will be fought between um I guess freedom and social democratic protection. And so that what what Pedro Sanchez will offer is uh, the promise of social protection, protecting living standards against neoliberal do dogma of the right, which is, you know, the, you know, at one moment during the, around the, the sort of Liz, Liz Trust debacle, he, he, you know, he, he had the, the cover of the economist, which is, you know, this is what you're offering to the right. I, you know, there, your choice is like chaos, austerity with the sort of, uh, the right or, you know, social protection, protecting living standards with, with the left. So that's how he wants to divide it. In terms of polarization, your initial question, I think it has changed a little bit in the sense that one of the things this government has done is it, is that it has lessened the tensions around the Catalan issue. Um, and this, this has seen a certain de deflation in, in Vox's support because, you know, they, they fed on this sort of na uh, nationalist tension between, you know, between Madrid and Barcelona. 
that you know these are anti-Spanish, you know, the anti-Spanish Catalans or whatever. And you know, I mean, part of the independence movement is basically in government or like you know informally offering support to the government in Madrid. Um, and the Catalan government itself, the pro-independence government, has split. So in terms of polarization, polarization it's still there. And there isn't much mo- movement between left and right. But I think, I guess, the nationalist element is, isn't so important, but you have a sense that the right, you know, they have that sort of Bolsonaro tactic of just constantly calling the left illegitimate. Oh, uh, yeah, Pedro, yeah. We, Pedro, we get- San- we Pedro Sanchez said, is yeah. in is in is in government with with ETA with the Catalans and with the communists. You know, it's oh, um, we, we've we've just had that this week here, just just this yeah. week. Owen, Owen, thanks for coming on and having this conversation with us. It's uh, it's interesting to see how Spain is doing, um, and that that kind of it's on a knife edge between going left or going right. It, it's very yeah. interesting. And I think what Tony, sorry, yeah, just what Tony was saying earlier, I think it will now depend how the crisis, you know, if, if, if these predictions of, you know, economics, a, a greater economic crisis, I don't know if the sort of mid intensity social democracy that the cur- current government is offering will be enough to get them reelected that next November, December, but it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, I think that will be the key. How, how deep is this crisis? Spanish households have already lost like 4.3% of purchasing power, which is worse than in the in the um in the financial crisis after 2008. So like you know people even with the you know they have they have done more and I think there is a recognition they've done more than other European countries, but Spanish ha- households are still suffering. And yeah, so it's a question I I, how, I how, yeah how much uh, we we are going to wrap, but I do think you've raised a really important point and something else that people have got to remember in in the context of this is that Spanish households haven't emerged from the pandemic and they haven't recovered the losses of the global financial crisis even. So, you know, like employment never got back to where it was 2008 terms it, um, uh, income inequality never shrunk to those levels either. So it's, it's, it's a lost decade and a half now, you know, and that's, and that's what we're, that's what we're battling against. We'll love to go back to you and chat about when we're getting closer to these elections, because it is really important. I do think Ireland is always, we always say this, I think Ireland's closer to Spain and Portugal, I believe, in the populist than, than we are to... I would of, agree with you, Tony. I would yeah. agree with you. Yeah, we have this well, it's, fu- it's funny, Spanish people have a great impression. Of, I mean, a lot, a lot of them maybe come for, you know, two weeks when they're a teenager. Yeah, but they, yeah, yeah. they generally have, like, they... You know they have a much more positive impression of Ireland than 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 England, etc. And they they always say we're like the sort of Spanish in the north, or whatever. I think I I agree with you. About some of them have gone to Cork, and then that puts them off. <laughs> they do they've never they've never come back. <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll leave it there, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for every all the all the messages we're getting. It's been great to get so much feedback. I know you won't like me saying it, but share. Let people know because we don't have ads. We don't have sponsors. We rely on you. Thanks again. And we will talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on page.